Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Alex. Always a pleasure to hear you sing, brother. Um, You guys probably know, maybe if you're uh, tuning in on YouTube, uh, uh, Pastor Sam is out. Uh, He had appendicitis. He had his appendix removed, his appendix removed this week. So he's recovering. So we do pray for his speedy recovery and for his general health um, and that he's back here as soon as possible. But in the meantime, that he gets rest and takes care of himself. So um, I'm here. You guys are stuck with me this week. And uh, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> uh, we have a couple of announcements before we uh, get started here. Oh, thank you. Otherwise, I'm going to be like this by the end of the <laughs> Saves the day again. <laughs> we put the Sam on here. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I wasn't thinking it. Uh, so first of all, Tuesday night at 7 p.m., we have AFA this week. So uh, if you are an artist of any type of medium, um, we have painters and digital artists and photographers, and we have people who write poetry, people who write music. We have people who do stained glass and people who knit and crochet, all kinds of different mediums of art. You are welcome to come Tuesday night. And uh, it's kind of just a a time of building community for artists. And the only rule is that you participate. So if you're half done with the work, bring it to show, bring it to share. If you've got something that you've just finished and you want to share it with somebody, that's what Tuesday night's for, right? And so we hope that you will. uh, I know that there's a lot of people in our community uh, that, that are that have these gifts. So we encourage you to use them to show up on Tuesday and to uh, embrace your creative side. And then next Sunday, so this has been a big time, long time coming. Next Sunday at 12 o'clock, uh, if you are a kid, <laughs> if, you are, if you have a child and you've been wondering what's been happening at Genesis because there's nothing going on for the kids, it's been because We've just been, there's just been, it's been COVID, right? And there's, it's not that this has never been a priority of ours. We've been trying to do things and a lot of people were just afraid to kind of come back because uh, there's, you know, several reasons that I want to get into. Um, it's been, it's been a time of like, what do we do? How do we get this going? But now PO kids are all back in school and we feel like this is the time. So next Sunday at 12 o'clock, right here in the Genesis building, we're having our first drive-in theater event. 
So if you are a kid and you're listening right now, or if you are a parent of a child, we would love to see you guys back here on Sunday at 12 o'clock. We're going to decorate some cars, lining them up right here. We're going to watch a movie together, and it's going to be a good time. And also, parents, we want to be able to share with you what uh, children's ministry is going to look like going forward. So it's a big time. We hope that you'll make it. We hope to, to fill this place up with lots of screeching laughter, and it's, it's bound to be a good time. There'll be some, uh, some snacks provided as well. And on that note, this is just an aside, um, a lot of families haven't come back because they didn't know if there's a place for their kids. And um, that's a big deal for families, um, I know. So we do want to ensure that you know we haven't forgot about you. Um, some of us are you. And so we definitely are looking forward to getting that rolling uh, once again. And like I said, this has always been a priority for us. It's just been hard to, to meet the needs of everybody. And so we do hope that you will come back. And if you are here today and you look around the room and you're like, I don't see so-and-so, I haven't seen so-and-so for a while, and I know that we were having this conversation earlier, let's keep those people in prayer. Um, let's keep them in prayer. And, and um, I think some people are waiting for the right time, and maybe this is the right time. Uh, so hope to see you guys all back soon. All right. There's a man, and he's sitting in the hospital with his newborn baby. Uh, I'm thinking about that moment, right? I've had three. <laughs> <clears throat> And in this moment, the guy's dad walks in, and he says, so, son, how does it feel to be a father? And he says, it feels good. I'm still a little bit scared, of course, but I'm really excited at the same time. How does it feel being a grandfather? And the dad says, it feels pretty great. You've always been a good son, and I've been waiting very patiently for this moment because I have something to give you. And he reaches into his backpack and he pulls out this ginormous book with fancy script on the front. And the script says, the big book of dad jokes. And he says, for generations, these sacred texts have been passed down through the, the patriarchs of our family. My father gave it to me when you were born. And now as a new father yourself, I bestow it upon you. With this book, you will have all the knowledge needed to become a truly great dad. The big book of dad jokes. Son says, wow, dad, this is amazing. Truly, I am honored. The father smiles and he extends his arm to shake his son's hand and he says, hi, honored, I'm dad. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's the response I thought I was going to get. <clears throat> I love dad jokes, but uh, okay, I'll see myself out. <clears throat> Sam's been going through the politics of Jesus for the last, uh, well, it's been a while, several months, um, focusing mostly on what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to continue in the idea of the politics of Jesus, but we're going to look at it from a different text today. <clears throat> this is going to be, you're going to, I'm going to start this and you're going to be like, oh my God, this is so boring. But I promise <laughs> there's something more to this. So listen, in Western culture, 
our societies have uh, been described by cultural anthropologists as a guilt and reward system. Whereas in the ancient Near East, where Jesus was and where the Bible stories all come from, they have a different set of uh, drivers. Uh, For the most part, all of Mesopotamia, the world of the Bible, they come from what's called a shame and honor system. So guilt, reward versus shame and honor. And again, you might be going, I don't care about that. (laughs) But let me tell you why this is important. It's the way we read our Bibles. See, guilt and shame might be closely related, but here's a textbook answer to the differences. Guilt cultures emphasize punishment and forgiveness. That's how they restore moral order. Shame cultures stress self-denial and humility. That's the way they restore social orders when something has gone wrong. Know anybody who has a really strong guilt trip game? Anybody? The rest of you haven't met my daughter. She's four years old. And um, conversations go like this. Dad, can I have candy? I mean, it was just Halloween, so she's got a bucket full of candy. And I'll say, no, Bella, it's too soon. You just woke up. You know, like, chill. Like, maybe after lunch, ask me again. And she'll say, are you mad at me? And I'll say, no, I'm not mad, baby. It's just too early for candy. And then she'll say, you don't love me anymore? She's four years old. I can't wait for teen years. But we all deal in guilt, uh, moralism, and punishment. When we do something wrong, we might feel guilty because we feel like we've been untrue to our values. And so that's the way we are brought up to see things. Um, And on the flip side, if I've behaved well, then I might expect to be rewarded for my behavior. And that's definitely true in kids. Shame, on the other hand, is the feeling that I am all wrong. That because I have violated my own values, I have broken my integrity and I am not worthy. And if I am whole and true and integrous, then I humbly accept honor or blessing. See, there's a difference and it might be very slight, but it's because of that difference that we miss some of the you know, some of the things, some of the very keen insights of simple Bible texts. And it might be subtle, but it might be the reason why when you hear about things like birthrights or, or the Father's blessing in Scripture, we don't understand why those things are such a big deal. But they are obviously a big deal to the writers of Scripture. Because that idea of honor is so much more important than our idea of getting a reward. So when the writers of Scripture are choosing their words, when they're writing the passages that we're very familiar with, particularly in the Old Testament but also in the New, they're being delivered from a shame-slash-honor system. And when they anthropomorphize God, that is to make God human so that we can understand little tidbits of who he is, when they do that, they, do, they put God through the same cultural lens because it's really 
impossible for anybody, any writer of any time, to separate themselves from the culture that they're familiar with or that they're buried in. Same is true for us. So when they're talking about God and they're telling stories about God, they're telling stories about God through this shame and honor system that is their culture. And it's really hard to see that God is bigger than that. And so we find examples throughout the scriptures. I'll give you an example from Moses, who is, of course, a Hebrew in a culture that stresses self-denial and humility. And he's telling us about God like this. And this is going to be a very sloppy paraphrase. Moses would say something like this. When I was up on the mountain talking to God, and God had just penned the Ten Commandments into these stones... God saw what was happening down the mountain at base camp. And those people down there that he had just delivered out of slavery had already fallen into idol worship. They were worshiping a golden calf. They brought shame upon themselves. And they brought shame upon God. And so Moses tells us in Exodus 30 that God was very angry. In fact, God said he wanted to wipe him out and start all over with just Moses. But Moses said, I pleaded on their behalf, and I said to God, what will Egypt think? What will the nations think if you rescued these people from slavery just to kill them yourself a few years later? And so we see what Moses is doing here is he's he's telling us a story about God, but he's using his shame and honor system. And he's basically saying, you're going to bring more shame upon your own name if you kill these people than if you spare them. And so the scriptures tell us, this is all Exodus 30, that God relented, that he saw Moses' point. Moses reasoned with God and God was like, all right, you got a point. And for his own glory, for his own honor, Only 3,000 people had to die. (laughs) It's a crazy story. And we don't always read it that way, maybe. But look, this is the paraphrase. This is the idea of shame and honor in the Old Testament. Moses reasoned with God, and God said, okay, you've got a point. Does that sound crazy to you? (laughs) Maybe it brings up some questions. I don't know. Moses wrote this, right? So it's been accepted that the first five books of the Bible were mostly written by Moses. A lot of people would say that different, you know, there's different authors. But if Moses did write this, then he's telling us this through his lens. He's telling us this through his culture, the way he understands shame, and the way he understands honor. And I'm not saying he's projecting on God. But Moses did kind of have an anger problem. And so, and so maybe, maybe so, he's writing this. And my point is that, you know, my point isn't that this is, this is a weird text or this is wrong or anything like that. My point is that these people are so entrenched in their culture and this shame and honor culture that even when they tell stories about God, they write it through that lens. And even when God himself relents corporal punishment to save himself from the scourge of shame. 
And, and this is important. Why is this important? It's because, like I said, just, was, just as Moses, Moses was a product of his culture, so are we. And if we understand guilt culture, but shame is a little less natural for us, we can miss, we can miss some really important, meaningful insights, sometimes even commands. Because we might read and gloss over something that we should really, really, really pay attention to. And I'm trying to figure this out. So when I get the opportunity to speak to y'all, I don't just, uh, I try not to, I should say, pick subjects willy-nilly. But I think about you. I think about who we are as Genesis. And I think, what would God say? And what would he say to us post-pandemic? I know we're still in the pandemic, but like coming out of this maybe a little bit. And meeting again, and missing some friends that are not here, but also what's, what's next? What's coming next? What is this going to look like from now on? What does life look like? And I keep thinking that we, I feel like we're just missing something. And it's not for lack of vision or leadership, it's just that I think we're missing something. And let me read this. This is Philippians 2, 1 through 8. should be up here, do you think? If you guys have watched Take 2, I think I refer to this scripture a lot. And so I feel like it's coming up in my heart. It's coming up in my mind. And even when I sat down and prayed about what to share today, this is what it is. This is Paul writing to his friends in Philippi, about 25, 26 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. And he says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, listen to that, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though it was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that through it you speak life into our minds, into our imaginations, into our hearts. And Lord, I pray that we would internalize these, that you would teach us to live them. The Spirit, we would follow you out of this building today and into our lives with this idea that we're not just cheerleaders for Jesus, but we are ambassadors for Christ. 
So speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to summarize that text a little bit because there's a lot going on, right? Paul says, have the same mind, the same love, be in one accord, which again is just another way of saying like work together, be together. He says, in humility, count others above yourself. Look after the best interests of others, not just your own self-interest, but the interests of other people. What do they need? What are they going through? Jesus, he says, emptied himself. Jesus, he says, laid down his rights. He emptied himself. He laid down his rights. He wasn't just humble, but also obedient. And even much, even so much that he died, and not only did he die, not only did he lay his life down, but it says, he died in perhaps the most vile, the most disgusting, the most humiliating and shameful, there's that word, deaths imaginable. So to tie those concepts together, the Hebrews of the ancient Near East lived in a shame and honor culture. Death by a Roman crucifixion is a special kind of torture and death. You might have heard that before. The Jews would say that kind of death might be the most shameful way to die that, that they could think of. And it's been said that the Romans didn't invent crucifixion, but they perfected it. The scourging, the beating, the sheer and absolute torture, it's only half of the story. The old hymn tells us, and I love the song, the old rugged cross, right, from a hill far away. But in reality, it wasn't a hill far away. It was at the base of a hill right outside of the city. And when we see depictions in Hollywood of the way the cross looked and how Jesus was lifted up high and looking down on the crowd, that's actually not the reality. The reality is he was at eye level so that people could look him in the eye, bleeding, beaten, naked, stripped. The most shameful, humiliating way to go. And, by the way, that kind of death wasn't for everybody because we know there's beheadings. There was other, other forms of death, but this one was saved for a special kind of criminal. And two types of criminals, really, the poor, thieves, and enemies of the state, which they consider Jesus. So here, and we see the politics of Jesus through that, because this is what they thought of him. The cross was, to the Jewish people, extremely shameful. And for Romans, it was the death of fools. Rebels. Anybody who thought they could take down the almighty Rome. If you were in first century Mesopotamia and wanted to start a new religion... Having a crucified king at the center of your story is probably not the best way to attract followers. 
It is shameful and foolish. It is the opposite of what the culture wanted to see in a religious movement or in a leader. On paper, it just doesn't work. We live in a world where kids base their value and self-worth on how many followers they have on social media. We live in a world where pride and wealth and power and strength are considered quintessential qualities of leadership. Humility is seen as weakness, not meekness. We live at a time where we are not of one mind. We are constantly lied to by media, both sides of media. We are lied to by our politicians, the people we elect. Sometimes we are lied to by churches and people that we want to trust. Sometimes we believe things that are contrary to the facts because they don't line up with the things that we really want to believe. We live in confusing times. But some 2,000 years ago, 25 years after the crucifixion, I think that's important to remember, 25 years after the crucifixion of Jesus, Paul writes these words to his friends at the Philippian church. Have this mind. In humility, count others as more significant than you. Don't just take care of you, but take care of them too. Think like Jesus, who was God, but laid down his rights to do what's best for others. Even if it means humiliation, even if it means death, even if it means the entirety of the people in Mesopotamia looked at you and thought you were foolish because it was the right thing to do. And herein lies, for me, the power of this. Everything said honor. Honor. That's what we want to see lifted up. But on the cross, it was shame. It was brokenness. And that's what Jesus did. The same God who did not want his name tarnished by the idol-worshipping Hebrews that he had just saved from Egypt, willingly participated in this. The same God who abhorred shame, this was his plan. And just keep thinking. And I've been thinking this for so long. And it's convicting to me. But I just keep thinking, Jesus laid down his rights. Jesus laid down his rights. Jesus laid down his rights. He had every reason to claim them. He had the power to claim them. He even had every right to level sinful humanity. Maybe not by flood all over again, but he had every right and the power to do it. But instead, he leveled himself. He laid down his rights. Why? I mean, for love, yeah. But how can we read this and think 
that he was not also showing us this paradigm shift, this, how can we read this and not think that he's showing us what power and wealth and strength look like in the kingdom of God? It looks different. It looks different than we all expected. It looks different than what we think of today. But this is what he's showing us. How can we read this and go, oh man, Jesus went through that and man, I love him. And not think this is the politics of Jesus. Yeah, he did it because he loves us. And yes, I love him. But he's also doing it to show an example of what it looks like to be an ambassador for Christ, to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We have been given an example of citizenship. Jesus laid down his rights. Jesus displayed ultimate humility. Jesus shows us the way to live. He is our example. Church, I just think, I keep thinking that he laid down his rights. There's something that we are missing. We need to rethink our strategy. In the crucifixion, Jesus gives us an example of love and humility and strength under this meekness, right? Strength, this, he kept it all together and he laid his rights down. And it isn't so we can stand back and cheer him on. It's so we might be like him, do what he does, live like he lived, love like he loves. I mean, this is the whole idea, right? And I'm horrible at it. Let me confess. <laughs> I'm selfish. I'm grumpy a lot. I pout if I don't get my way. I say horrible things to drivers on the freeway that I hope they'll never hear. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, uh, I eat too much. I, I mean, there's so many things. Like when we think about this, like, you know, I I post mean tweets in my mind. <laughs> but more seriously, I don't love like Jesus loved. I don't even die to myself, let alone lay my life down for others or lay down my rights for others. I always love the, the, the uh, quote by N.T. Wright where he said, I think it's him, or he just requoted somebody else and he got credit for it, I'm not sure. But he said, wherever St. Paul went, there was a riot. But wherever I go, they serve tea. <laughs> Maybe we're not doing it right. And I'm not saying go start a riot. I'm just saying the church Jesus saw was countercultural, was upside down, and I just don't know how we fit. But that's what church is, after all. This is what it is. This is a place, a community, where we work this stuff out together. Because I have all these flaws, and I'm being nice. I'm not even telling you the deep, dark, secret flaws. Um, but if you want to know this, I'll tell you after YouTube's off. <laughs> um, 
But this is what it's for. We, we come together. We work these things out. We spur each other on. We challenge each other. We sharpen each other. Like iron sharpens iron. That's the idea. That's why we meet. Paul says it in Ephesians 3. He says, the idea is that the church makes known the manifold wisdom of God. How we display Jesus to a world that is in itself upside down and backwards and needs a good God-sized kick in the pants. We are the ambassadors. We are the citizens. We are supposed to be showing the kingdom of God to the people in our lives. Not just talking about, man, I'm glad Jesus did all the work. I mean, he did. But we get to participate. We get to be his ambassadors. We get to show the world what it looks like when we lay down our rights. When we walk in humility, when we display the politics of Jesus, which are really, you know, to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Church isn't supposed to be where we go for the latest juicy gossip or to air our grievances. And it's not supposed to be judgy and an extension of high school popularity contests and cliques. It isn't supposed to make people feel like they don't belong because we need every person to play a part and a role in this kingdom. It's family where we work out our ish together. And we make each other better for it. And the goal is twofold. To know Jesus and to show Jesus. And in Philippians 3, so the next chapter, Paul says this. He says that he wants to know Jesus. That I might know him and the power of his resurrection. But this part gets me, dude. And may share in the sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I'll bear the shame, Paul says, or even more powerfully in Romans 1, where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. See, we might read that and think that means that we're not supposed to be afraid to share our faith, because that's how I was taught, right? But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about shame culture. I am not ashamed. Anyways, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. It's beautiful. And that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. Now, knowing how horrible his death was, how many of us say this prayer? <laughs> it's crazy stuff. Who thinks this? Who, who's like, I, I want to know him so intimately that I even suffer like he did. I don't pray that way. But Paul says, I want to know him, like really know him, not know about him. I want to know him, not only in the power of the resurrection, but also in the shame and suffering of his death. But this is where it gets real. I think this is where it gets real. Because lots of us in this room know and can attest that our faith 
may never be as real as it is when we suffer. When we're going through it. It's not always about the victory. It's not always about the blessing. It's not all fake smiles and Sunday mornings and happy, happy, happy. It's about becoming like Jesus. And we may never have the opportunity to become more like Jesus than when we are going through it, when life is at its darkest, hardest, when we are out of sorts, when we suffer, when the dark night of the soul sets in and it's hard to see any light. Jesus suffered that kind of suffering, that kind of death on the cross. Too often we waste those moments in self-pity or in isolation. And I, I do it. I do it. I know I do it. When I'm going through hard times, you see me less. But if we could just own it, each one of us, if we could just own it and wear it and bring it here when we meet together as a family and be like, man, I am going through it. I don't want to fake it. I don't want to put on a fake smile and pretend like life is good because it's not good. A friend of mine posted on Facebook, he'd, he just recently lost his dad and his brother within a matter of two months. And he, he used to be a pastor in San Bernardino, but his family moved to Arizona. And he, and he said, he said, I'm going to sign off Facebook for a few months. And he said, don't get me wrong. I know that God is good. I know who he is, but I just don't feel it now. How real is that? Like, that's real. And, and so you want to have a real conversation with a guy. And, I, you know, I reached out to him, and I know, like, I, my dad is still here. I don't have that kind of... I just know, though, like, he's suffering. I reached out to his wife to make sure he's cool. You know, he's not signing off Facebook forever or, or like, thinking suicidal thoughts or anything crazy. His wife's like, no, it's hard time, but He's faithful. And what do we do? What do we do with our own selves when we're facing hard times? Do we just, like, I don't feel like going today because I don't want to fake it? I think a lot of people do. And COVID brought on a lot of dark times. I don't want to waste those moments anymore. Because the kingdom of God is not Disneyland. It's not plastic facades and characters in suits. Well, sometimes it is. (laughs) But it's real. And it's hard. And it's cruciform. That idea that we live through some of this. Like the crucifix. But the kingdom of God is also glorious and beautiful because dawn breaks on the dark night of the soul and there is beauty for ashes and resurrection happens and catharsis happens and it might not take away all the scars, but it leaves us every time a little closer to Jesus if that's what we do with it. It connects us to him in such a deep, intimate way that it fundamentally changes the way we see life if we let it. And what the watching world needs 
now maybe more than ever, is more than paper-thin faith or veneer smiles. They've seen all that. They've seen the big production, and they're walking away from, from it in droves. They need to see why real people keep the faith after they go through the hardest time of their life. They need to see what Jesus does in your life, what difference he makes. They need to see why we keep the faith after a massive setback or serious loss or how we maintain hope when we really just want to give up. How we carry each other's burdens when the load is too much for any one of us. Why we turn to Jesus instead of booze or eating when we want to escape. And so I really, I think we have our work cut out for us. And I want to give pause. I'm going to have Alex ask him to come back up and sing a song. And as we do, I mean, sing along. But really, I'm going to ask you guys to think about this and meditate on this. Jesus laid down his rights to serve us. How does humility show up in us to serve others? Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 1, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, that's us, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Pray that it changes who we are fundamentally at our core, that we live out this life of faith in Jesus that makes a difference in the world around us. And we ask for that power and that blessing and that honor. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.